Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, as we turn in our Bibles to um, Ephesians chapter 2, just a few quick announcements. First of all, greetings from Rwanda. Um, I was out there last weekend to finish off what we began doing here the weekend before. Uh, you will recall we set aside our brother Matthias and Emmanuel, uh, our brothers, as uh, missionaries for Rwanda. Basically, I crossed over there to go and introduce them in their new capacities as missionary pastors to the brethren there. It was uh, heartwarming to see what the Lord is already doing among them. Uh, just in the uh, one year and a half that they have gone from being small Bible study groups to becoming full-fledged churches. And thankfully, the uh, process of uh, registration is going on pretty well. Um, at least one has now gone to national level. It's gone through sector and uh, town levels. The other one is still in the process. Uh, they've been given some funding as well by uh, an individual in order for them to purchase land again as a process of registration. Just amazing to see what the Lord is doing there. So they, they asked me to bring a truckload of uh, greetings um, over here. And then also just a quick one, as our friends are leaving to, to go back to the U.S., uh, please do take greetings from Kabwata Baptist Church and its elders to your various churches and uh, the various uh, campus outreach uh, groups that you are representing and so on. And then, of course, uh, you heard from the announcements, Zambia's only Christian magazine. It's now in its 43rd, no, 45th edition. This is the 18th year in which it continues to run against all odds. And the only reason why it will continue is because you are buying your copies and also buying copies for friends. Okay? As usual, KBC, this is not for us. It is for us, through us to others. So please uh, do, at the end of the service, purchase your copies and also extras for friends. Uh, under news items, it's amazing. God's work is going forward. Chamber Valley, appointment of its first elders. Choma, appointment of its first elders and pastor. Kapiri, appointment of its first elders. Ibexil, appointment of its first pastor. This is history. Please make sure you get your copy. And copies for friends as well. The last announcement is about the Heroes of the Faith Day this coming weekend. Uh, is uh, the picture ready? Okay. Thank you for laughing. In 1946, just want to say seven quick things to whet your appetite. Not for that, it won't be what you'll be eating this coming week. 
But in 1946, a brother in the Lord, together with his brother, came up with that chicken sandwich. 1946, as a way in which they were going to uh, move their restaurant to the next phase. The second thing that I want to mention about it is that by 2019, they had managed to multiply that restaurant 3,000 times across the United States with a revenue of $11 billion per year from that sandwich. Number three is by 2016, each of those restaurants brings in an average of $4.8 million per year. You've stopped laughing. It's by far the highest pay restaurant across the United States. And here's what is surprising. That restaurant is never open on Sunday. So that those who work there can go to church. The brother, oh, number five, sorry. Number five item is uh, Truett Cathy, who is the brain behind all this. Up until he was too old to serve in the church, remained a faithful member of the Baptist church that he belonged to and taught Sunday school for 50 years. 50 years. Number six. His restaurant offers, up to now, offers scholarships to employees so that they can better themselves and go forward. And has given out, therefore, scholarships to their employees worth $23 million. Lastly, Chick-fil-A, which is the name of the restaurant that has come out of that chicken sandwich, is currently processing partnership with the African Christian University so that it can become one of our major sponsors. So, in case Truett Cathy was just a name to you, hopefully this coming Saturday you will have a role model to emulate. For the last 30 years, every year in June except last year, we have looked at role models, Christian role models, preachers, missionaries, mothers, reformers,
politicians, theologians, hymn writers. Well, this time, it's a businessman. Come out and also invite friends that we might come and learn. Because of the number of seminars we now have, this one will only be in the morning. So we begin at 9 and end at 13 hours. The digital posters will be out on social media. Do what you always do. Share, 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 share. Let's paint social media red and let's fill this auditorium to come and see how perhaps we too from a Chitumbua <laughs> eh? You are laughing? Alright Back to Ephesians and chapter 2 Ephesians and chapter 2 I'll begin reading from um, chapter 1 and uh, verse 19 in order for us to keep the context. Otherwise, we'll be looking at chapter 2 and the first three verses. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning to read from verse 19. That you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the workings or the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Chapter 2 and verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We'll end our reading there. Well, friends, we are continuing, as you can see from the screen, in our series of sermons celebrating the unsearchable riches of Christ. And for quite some time, we had been in the first chapter in which we were seeing, first of all, the Apostle Paul showing the way in which we are brought to salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, the work of God the Father in eternity. Secondly, the work of God the Son 2,000 years ago. And then thirdly, the work of God the Holy Spirit 
as he pursues us as individuals and brings us to repentance and faith in Christ. We also then went on to see how Paul responded to this. And it was first of all to thank the Lord for what he has done for believers in bringing them to salvation. But secondly, to pray that they might know more of what God has done and continues to do for them in bringing them from sin through salvation and finally to bring them to heaven. And it is this last section that he really opens up, as we've seen, from verse 19 all the way to the end of this chapter, that he really wants to finally drive home. And it is the power of God that works within us to take us all the way to glory. We learned that it is equivalent, it is like the power that God exerted to bring Jesus from death, ascension all the way to heaven, and placed him, as we noticed here, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He's basically saying it is like that power. And basically that's the, the string that he now continues with as he enters into chapter 2. And so, as we get into chapter 2, remember, Paul did not write in chapters and verses. He, he was just continuing to write. And therefore, as he comes now into what we now have as chapter 2 and verse 1, all he is doing is he is going from Jesus back to the disciples or the believers. So he began by saying, they, you need to know this great power that God is exerting in you. And then he says, it is like the power that he used to raise Jesus from the dead and bring him to glory. And now he is saying, actually, it is exactly the same way with you. Because you too were dead and through this same power, he is raising you to be seated with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That same power is the one that works within you. Well, brethren, as we go on to open this up, one or two quick points. First of all, Today, we are simply going to consider this state of death that we were all in so that we might appreciate that even without talking about translation finally to glory, just getting us from where we were necessitated, absolutely necessitated the power of God. And then, secondly, it is to drive out of our minds any notion that we 
contributed to our salvation. That, okay, maybe Jesus died alone 2,000 years ago. But the time when I became a Christian was primarily about me making a wise decision. That somehow, if we can just have the, the right atmosphere in our evangelistic meetings, that if we can just tell enough nice stories, weave them together, if, if perhaps we can have um, our music department here playing the kind of, of uh, music on the keyboard uh, th that can make even a, a, a rock perhaps shed tears. If we can just do all those things, we're going to have a lot of people accepting Jesus Christ. We need that notion smoked out of our heads. And the way in which it can be smoked out of our heads is we, when we realize that the non-Christian is dead. Dead. Spiritually dead. In precisely the same way in which if you go to UTH mortuary right now, you will find dead bodies lifeless you can crack jokes as many times as you want you can play your keyboard to the same tunes that can produce tears out of rocks those bodies will remain lifeless dead and all you can do for them is to bury them well, that's exactly what Paul is saying here as we enter into our text. Listen to the way he begins. He says there, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. By adding in trespasses and sins, what he's really saying is that whereas the kind of death that we are looking at is physical, your death is spiritual. It is death nonetheless. But it is spiritual. It is a death in trespasses. It is a death in sin. In other words, the same way in which death disables a person to participate in that which is natural and physical, in the same way spiritual death disables people from participating in that which is moral and that which is spiritual. It becomes a realm of life and living that is completely foreign to them. Why? They are dead. You can, if you want, take that sandwich that we've all just seen that has become so famous in America as to make that restaurant become the top restaurant 
in the whole of that country with all the aroma that it has and put it in front of a dead dog that tail won't wave at all it won't because it's dead 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 a dead man cannot decide to eat and live in the same way you in that original state in which the gospel finds you you had absolutely no capacity to believe and live absolutely no capacity because spiritually you were dead the apostle paul proceeds to open up this deadness by speaking in terms of enslavement enslavement and this is the way he puts it here in uh, verse 2 it says in which you once walked and he uses the word following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience the word following there in fact in this first example it's made easier for us when it uses the word following the course of this world it's the way in which the water of a river follows the valley in which it is it's it's inevitable that's what is going to happen and if you want to divert a river all you need to do is in, to, to dig another channel and then open up the place where the river is flowing and before you know it it immediately follows the new course it's inevitable that's the way it is going to go rivers or bodies of water follow the shape and the direction of the valley well paul is saying here that that's precisely the way in which we are in our state before we are converted paul says there that we follow the course of this world what does he mean by that well by world he is referring to this fallen world a world that is opposed to the will of god a world that will not worship the living and true god in um, psalm 2 which we sang a few weeks ago this is the way in which the psalmist pictures the world psalm 2 and it has never changed this is the world in which we are the psalmist in the new testament it says david so but it's not written there why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain 
the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Of course, God's response is given in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He speaks to them in his wrath and terrifies them in his fury. But the bottom line is this, that the world is opposed to God. It has replaced God with idols, idols of its own making. And therefore, supposedly, God is irrelevant to life and living. They've even come up with what they call atheism, that God does not exist. In the name of education, they say that we came into existence through a bang. There was just an explosion in the name of education. Bang! And here we are. Thank you for laughing. But that's how far the world has gone in its godlessness. That ultimately, we as human beings are the ultimate of the whole universe. God must be out of the picture. Well, friends, that's where we came from. And even when we were religious, it was a God of our own making. Not the real true God, no. A God who is nothing but some kind of powerful being to serve us and our own desires and our own ends, life being around us. The first death is in this mindset. This mindset. It's about us. But the second aspect of this enslavement is to the devil. To the devil. Because this mindset of the world is actually driven by Satan. And so Paul goes on to say there, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In other words, the world is simply following the devil's agenda. That's all. Simply following the devil's agenda. Uh, the Apostle Paul here calls him with these high-sounding words, the prince of the power of the air. In other words, if we can begin with the air, he's invisible. We can't see him. And yet at the same time, he is very powerful. He is mighty. 
He's got the kind of strength that makes it impossible for us to escape. Let's assume we were even trying to escape. And then he is the ruler of that power. The prince of the power of the air. In other words, he is the grand slave master. He is the ruler. Or to borrow another phrase that the Apostle Paul uses, he is the God of this age, with a small g now. The God of this age. And therefore, he is the one who commands his subjects to follow him. And he commands them from the inside out. Paul says here, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In the sons of disobedience. So if that enslavement is from within. When the devil shouts, slave, they answer, so, and off they go to go and do his bidding. The apostle Paul says, that's where we were. And that's the reason why, inevitably, our lives were lives of disobedience. We were sons of disobedience. Inevitably, because that's his agenda. He leads the whole world in that direction. Gives them false religions if only in that they can continue to fulfill his bidding. And then the Apostle Paul changes from that enslavement and now speaks in terms of the fulfilling, the inevitable fulfilling of these fallen desires. The fallen desires. He puts it this way in verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, and there it is now, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. From following a course, now it is pursuing a course. Pursuing a course. Carrying out the desires of that fallen nature. In other words, once upon a time, we were enslaved to the world. Once upon a time, we were enslaved to the devil. And once upon a time, we had but one agenda, and it was this. That which is my last, L-U-S-T, that which was my passion, that's what drove me. That's what drove me. That's all that I wanted to do. I woke up in the morning, and I had one agenda on my mind, and it is this. Where will I find sinful pleasure? Where? And bam! That's what I went on to do. Satisfying the inner cravings that are in themselves 
opposed to God. The passion, the lust, the fallen desire was so strong that I could not help but fulfill it. I couldn't help but fulfill it. And often what happens with people in that category, and we've all been there if we are converted now, is that yes, there may be some regrets because people bend their fingers because sin is costly. And so for a day, a week, a month, maybe a year, the person says, no, I, I think I, I need to give up this kind of life. It's, it's not doing me much good and so on and so forth. But because the heart has not been changed, it's a short detour. The river flows right back into its normal course. Into the course that follows the world. Into the course that follows the devil. Into the course that follows the fallen nature. And as Jesus once said, the end is worse than the first. It's worse than the first. Because the heart has not been changed. Well, friends, this is the description that the Apostle Paul begins with. And this explains the reason why it is impossible for somebody who is in this condition to then on his own change and begin to live a life that is godly, a life that is Christ-like, a life that is holy. It is impossible for such a person to even make that decision. It is impossible. Look at the way the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans and chapter 8. Romans and chapter 8. I begin reading from verse 9. In fact, no. Let me go a little further up and begin from verse 6. And then we'll just end with verse 9. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, which is what we're talking about here, is a state of death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. That is a state of life and peace. Now verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh, listen to this, is hostile to God. And he's not saying is sometimes hostile to God. He's not saying perhaps might be hostile to God. It is hostile to God. And then it goes on to say, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot submit to God's law. It does not is a statement of fact. It cannot is a statement of 
ability. It's not possible. It's impossible for a person in this state to obey or submit to God's law. And as if it's not enough, the Apostle Paul repeats in verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's impossible for them to do so. That again is a statement of ability. They cannot. The only reason why a Christian is able to do so is now in verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. In other words, it's the same power of the spirit that energizes the soul that was once spiritually dead and therefore enables us to please God. Until that point, it is a total impossibility. The inevitable consequence of that, the Apostle Paul goes on to say back to our text, is that by nature, we deserve only one reaction from God, and it is his wrath. His wrath. Verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. By nature, children of wrath. In other words, the very fact that this is the kind of life that inevitably was being lived makes us individuals that God must punish because he is by nature a holy God. God hates sin and therefore must punish it. But if you even just put everything together, remember Psalm 2. Those that were conniving and conspiring to overthrow God, to shake him off. We must live our own lives. We know what we want to do with our lives. Why should we be obeying God and listening to him and so forth? We are independent of him. God's first reaction was that of laughing. But his next reaction was that of wrath. Wrath. Because it's conspiracy to overthrow a legitimate government. And therefore, he gets angry. It happens anywhere in the world. When individuals decide we are throwing off government, a duly elected government. Those become objects of the wrath of that government. 
That explains why God has prepared a hell. That that's where all sinners must go. Yes, he is a merciful God. He is a loving God. He is a gracious God. But if he brings individuals of this nature into his heaven, he is bringing rebellion into heaven. It is a matter of time when heaven will become ungovernable. When we as fallen creatures will be seeking our own way now in his heaven. And therefore, God must punish sinners in hell. He must. Why? Because your nature does not change just because you died. No. Your nature will not change just because it's brought you into heaven. No. It was Spurgeon who once said that, you know, thieves pickpockets that if they were to enter into heaven they would be pickpocketing the pockets of angels angels just find hey wait, wait. because they don't change and he said that you know that sunday after the service somebody rebuked him and said look angels don't have pockets so the following sunday he came and corrected and said they would be stealing feathers from the wings of angels. Just find an angel is trying to fly. What, what happened? Because you don't change just because your environment has changed. You don't. Sinners are sinners by nature. They are Dead. Let's get back to that word. Dead. Spiritually dead. They cannot desire spiritual things. They cannot themselves now submit to the righteous government of God of their own accord. They can't. And therefore, God must punish. There's only one hope. And that's what we will see next Sunday. Only one hope. And it's at the beginning of verse 4. Verse 4. But God. There it is. But God. God must act first. To infuse spiritual life into that which is dead. I'll just read it, but we'll open it up next week. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, it is in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Friends, it's our only hope. 
When God exerts his might, his power, his strength, the same that he exerted when the dead body of our Lord Jesus Christ was in that tomb 2,000 years ago. And consequently, that lifeless body was given new life and walked out of that tomb. It is exactly the same power that he exerted when he raised Lazarus from the dead. When he spoke and Lazarus came forth. Dead, 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 yes. But by the power of God walked out of that tomb with new life. It's exactly what happens when any one person becomes a Christian. It's not his own intelligence, his cleverness, or the atmosphere that you have put together. No, a thousand times no. Dead individuals cannot be acted on from the outside by mere human influence. God must act. God must act. That's the folly of individuals who think that, well, you know, I'll, I'll become a Christian just before I die. You know? Let me enjoy the world now. And then, just before I die, I'll say, okay, now I'm ready. Friend, your heart is in utter rebellion. Utter rebellion. And that's the reason why. If he has opened your eyes to this reality, if by his spirit he has begun to tighten the screw on your conscience, it's not because he hates you. It's because he loves you. And the least you can do is to call upon the Savior in that moment that he might reach out and save you. Once that reality has begun to dawn, I want to repeat, as uncomfortable as it might be, as painful as conviction of sin might be, it is this. But God, but God, out of his love and mercy and grace, coming by his spirit, and saying, leave that life of sin and come to me. Therefore, you too can say, Savior, Savior, while on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. This is where he finds us. Utterly unable and in rebellion. By that great power that takes us to heaven, that's where it begins. If I could put it this way, in the mortuary. In the mortuary. That's where it begins. And if he has begun from there, what makes you think he can fail to take you to heaven? Eh? If he gave life to you, 
when you were utterly dead, he will do to you what he has done to Christ in bringing him into the heavens. He will take you to glory. Amen.